Hello, everybody. This is P. Norman Grant with Slim Jim and another edition of The Grapefruit Agenda, where we summarize, analyze, scrutinize, brutalize, sometimes even cannibalize the news that's floating around our spheres. So why grapefruit? Because we're sweet on conservatism and sour on liberalism. Today's effort is called Crazy Cali with Diversity, Equity, and Delusion. So I'm watching a lot of football over the holidays. A lot of football. Too much. English football, World Cup football. You know, European soccer. Our football, college football, teen football. Pickleball. I'm watching pickleball on TV. But I'm noticing the end zones, especially in California stadiums. I think it was more than California. I know it was in Seattle. And at the end of the the end zone, Large letters, the biggest letters you've ever seen. It doesn't say Rose Bowl, Cotton Bowl, though. It says end racism. Still, this is three years now, three years since uh, George Floyd. Still, end racism. So I'm sitting in the stands. Just imagine, you're sitting in the stands. You paid $500 a ticket, $500 for your wife, $500 for your 14-year-old kid. And the 14-year-old kid turns to you and says, Daddy, why do they have end racism in in the end zone? Are they telling us that we're racist? And we have to do something? Because it sounds like a demand. In sentence structure, we call it the imperial, the imperative. It's the imperative mood. It's not demonstrative. It's not inquisitive. It's imperial. It's imperative. It's we are telling you what to do. And so we're trying to figure out how to do that. Apparently, if we could find it, maybe we could do something about it, even though they had the civil rights movement. We've had Martin Luther King. We've had civil rights in the in the laws of our Constitution. We've had Supreme Court justices, federal courts, circuit courts. We've had all kinds of NGOs for 60 years and still in the end zone. After we pay $1,500 to get into our football stadium, we see end racism. So that's not inspiring. That's not inspiring. But on the other side of the sideline, not in the end zone, there are inscribe the words, inspire change. As a matter of fact, inspire change is written on some of the helmets. I think inspire change was on Tom Brady's helmet and many. The NFL must give a list out, about four or five different options that you can put in your helmet and you can choose inspire change. Other, another one is uh, choose love. Choose love. Choose love instead of choose hate. I mean, why would you put choose love on there because some people are choosing hate. Who are the haters? That's prob- that's the problematic situation here. So the, the assumption is that the people who paid $1,500 to get into the stadium are the ones that are hating. They must be because the people who put down the letters in the end zone assume that somebody out there is a racist or else they wouldn't put end, end racism in the, in the end zone. Somebody's got to be racist out there. So we must inspire change. Well, it turns out inspire change is really... It's a government program. Oh, trust that government. Coming down from, I don't know where, HHS. It could be Joe Biden's cabinet somewhere. We've been through this with the EIG and, and ESG and DEI. And DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's where it comes from. And that's the wellspring. So when you, when you do a little research on Inspire Change, you see some of these websites, they come up with some of this vernacular, the BLM vernacular, the CRT vernacular. The Berkeley, the Berkeley University of my alma mater from many years ago. In these inspired change websites, you'll see words like this. 
we provide equal justice for marginalized communities. Marginalized communities. I'm trying to figure out where the margins are. Are they outside, like in Paris? Are they the encirclement of Paris by the marginalized, mostly Muslim community? Maybe they're, they're circling Barcelona, London, Rome. Is that what they mean by the marginalized? Well, there's a community anyway. What is the community? Is it just a community of color? Is it just a community of uh, veterans? A community of Hogwarts? What community is this? We're asking innocently here. Another, another demand is close the opportunity divide. Now, I'm looking at some of the sweatshirts these football players had. And on the back of the shirts, this is more than one team. On the top of the shirts, it had opportunity. Down below, it had equal justice. And then it had equity. So here's the NFL inspiring change by telling the football players to wear these certain hoodies with inspire change and equity on them. And again, these are the marching, walking billboards, walking billboards, so they can end racism, wherever they may find it. Here's another one. Close the opportunity divide. Now, folks, this is a legal issue. If there's a divide in the opportunity quotient, then there's a law that's been broken because we have civil rights. We have EEOC, economic opportunity. We've got that. It's been in, in the bedrock in law since the 60s. Here's another one. This gets real interesting. In the Inspire Change websites, you'll see this. Diminish police power. Now we're seeing a little darker side to the motivation. Diminish police power. This comes directly from the ACLU. And Amnesty International they want police power diminished internationally. We should have less violence by cops, excessive violence against people of color, POCs, even in Belgium, Antwerp, Stockholm, Denmark. Yeah, they want that. Amnesty International. And here's the, here's the, the kicker. End qualified immunity. When you end qualified immunity, that means every cop that does any kind of discipline on any kind of perp, it may be a little excessive if you say, hey, stop that, will you? Stop ripping off my CVS of all the stuff in there that you're not going to get caught for, please. But that may be excessive. We don't know. So this is the NFL. This is my holiday gift message to everyone. End racism, would you please? So they can put something else in the end zone, like, you know, Santa Claus. Picture of Rudolph in the, in the end zone, please. But we got to go to crazy California. When we talk about inclusion, because I'm in this... DEI mood, diversity, equity, inclusion. I discussed the, the equity, but diversity and inclusion are still in the triumvirate. So here's a, a piece from Wall Street Journal last, last week. California, never a slave state, considers reparations. It's a crazy Cali. Crazy Cali. That they say that a lot of the newest issues that are developed, new creative laws, policies, uh, cultural norms and cultural deviations come from California. I know. I was out there trying to do them until I got sane. So here's a headline from the Wall Street Journal. People, poor people, including poor black people, have it hard in California. An honest assessment of the causes would require the Golden State's political establishment to admit that its attempts to address enduring poverty have been catastrophic for low-income Californians. This is Will Swaim in the Wall Street Journal. He's being a little tongue-in-cheekish here. So instead of being okay, being beneficial to people in poverty, California's got a state reparations commission 
that time traveled to the 19th century and discovered that slavery is the real reason for enduring black poverty. To settle accounts, the commission has determined that California taxpayers owe each of their black neighbors $223,000. Now, this is Mr. Newsom. Mr. Newsom is encouraging the state legislature, which created the task force, they're going to take up the proposal seriously in a few weeks. So the question is, who would get the 223000 Says slavery in what's now California. This is the 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 Grinch, the Grinch that's going to steal the reparations. Slavery in what's now California was banned under Mexican authority in 1837. California joined the Union in 1850 as a free state. There was no slavery in California. The panel briefly. This is unbelievable. There was no slavery in California. The panel briefly acknowledges this, only to dismiss it, lingering instead on the 1852 passage of the California Fugitive Slave Act. Now, if you came from somewhere else and you plopped there, you might have some bounty hunters on your butt. Under which 13 people were deported from the state. Let's go over that again. Since 1852, and they had the California Fugitive Slave Act, 13 people were deported from the state. So we have we have a little conundrum here. How are we going to tell the people that are supposed to get $223,000 because of slavery that there was no slavery in the state, but they should get reparations anyway? Are we following this, grapefruiters? So the real challenge to black and other poor Californians is bad government. Take the state's execrable public education system. California ranks dead last in the nation to literacy. Black children are the most brutalized here. They are only 10%, 10% of black students meet math standards, and about 30% achieve English competency. Now, let's go back to the T-shirt in the foot, on the football players, which said equal opportunity. This is, folks, this is the great leveler, public education. 10% meet math standards, 30% achieve English competency. We have equal opportunity. Yet as test scores fall, high school graduations rise. Denied a real education, many of these children will qualify only for low-level jobs and the government assistance. Are you getting the inverse proportions? So the commission recalls this a school-to-prison pipeline. That's another, another saying by the left, another aphorism. Children will qualify only for low-level jobs. Student performance has fallen with the rise of union power. Ah, the inverse proportion there. Union power goes up. Kids' grades go down. More than $300 million in politics the union gets. In California, union leaders use their political leverage to expand union power, no matter the cost to poor kids. And finally, raising the banner of social justice. And that's what this is from. This is Joe Biden's cabinet. They want social justice. Raising the banner of social justice, California's political establishment addresses each of these and other policy failures with new claims of racism and new policies that further immiserate the poor. What a great word, immiserate. Makes the poor more miserable. The more they claim racism, the more miserable people are who are in poverty. It further immiserate the poor. Confronted with their, these failures, the establishment has now come to the bottom of the barrel of excuses. Blame slavery, punish those who didn't engage in it, and reward those who didn't suffer from it directly. In California, the answer to the failures of progressivism is always more progressivism. This is good stuff. Good stuff. Now, let's go to the New York Post and let's do a little equity, shall we? Equity. Everyone should arrive with the same product, given different investments of energy, ambition, intelligence, training, morality. So you should come out with the same consequence, the same prize, the same reward. Everyone should have the same reward. It sounds like 
the Communist Manifesto, from each according to their needs, to each according to their abilities. No, from each according to their abilities, to each according to their needs. Level it off like a pancake. So for years, this is out of Virginia, New York Post writer. For years, two administrators at John Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology have been withholding notifications of National Merit Awards from the school's families, most of them Asian, thus denying the right to use those awards to boost their college admission prospects and earn scholarships. This is about the PSAT. Remember PSAT, Slim Jim? We both, we did, we both took the PSAT. I think we may have slept before the end of it. So this episode emerged amid the school district's new strategy of, here we go, equal outcomes for every student without exception. I yellowed this, grapefruiters. I yellowed it. Equal outcomes for every student without exception. So what they did, an enterprising mom lawyer uncovered the fact that the National Merit Scholarship Awards were, in fact, awarded. But they didn't let anybody know. They didn't want to let anybody know in this Virginia school because then that would seem like some people were more deserving than others. So intrepid Thomas Jefferson parent. Okay, since starting as a freshman at the school in September, her son, who is part Arab-American, studied statistical statistical analysis, literature reviews, and college-level science late into the night. This alert workload was necessary to keep him up to speed with the advanced studies at TJ, which U.S. News and World Report ranks as America's top school. But the problem was they never let these kids know. Nobody found out. They didn't announce it because they didn't want people to see that other people have advanced past their levels. This is just unbelievable. It said these administrators admitted that the decision to withhold the information from parents to let them know how well these kids did on the PSATs, and now not well, some of the kids did, and inform the students in a low-key way was intentional. He said, he quoted, we want to recognize students for who they are as individuals, not focus on their achievements. Do you get that? He said he told her that, that claiming that he and the principal didn't want to hurt the feelings of students who didn't get the award. A National Merit spokeswoman said that the organization's officials leave this honor exclusively to the high school officials who said, we want to recognize students for who they are, maybe what gender they reveal themselves as, but they don't want to recognize their achievements. This is so upside down. This is 180. This is 180. This is equity. So we did a little bit of inclusion and a little bit of equity. How about this diversity? This is from my favorite magazine, Washington Examiner. And Adams, who does John Adams, he's got, a, he's got an angle called media malpractice. Now, the Washington Post, one of my main enemies, you should all get a subscription, $10 a month, just to go on there, see the message boards, the comments on their news stories. Unbelievable. This is the radical left. These are the haters. So Adams calls this fun with numbers. Now, this is about the World Cup and diversity. The only thing as dangerous as a child with a loaded firearm is a newsman with statistics. Neither understands what he's doing, and both are just a moment away from causing serious harm to himself and others. So the Washington Post revealed a story that was claiming that Argentina's World Cup team had too much whiteness. I don't know if you saw the Argentine team. Different colorization, different ethnicity than Brazil. People were crying about Brazil's failure. And Argentina won the final. So it's an opinion article about the whiteness of Argentina's World Cup team. Why doesn't, here's the headline, from 
I'll tell you the lady's, lady's name. Why doesn't Argentina have more black players in the World Cup? Asked the reporter. December 8th, opinion article. Its subhead reads, Argentina is far more diverse than many people realize, but the myth that it is a white nation has persisted. The bookmark headline likewise reads, Black erasure in Argentina helps explain the World Cup team. So Mr. Adams' media malpractice goes on to put in the statistics of the ethnic makeup of Argentina. The article reads, In 2010, Argentina's government released a census that noted 149,000 people out of 67 million. Far less than 1% of the country was black. In fact, one less of one less of percent, less than 1%, was black. For many, that data seemed to confirm that Argentina was indeed a white nation. So what would be the consequence of that? Would they put end racism in the end zone, in the World Cup, or even in Argentina? Imagine going to Buenos Aires and putting end racism in the end zone. So this already infinitesimally small number of black Argentinians includes the elderly, women, and children. And so when you break it down, less than 1% of the people who are in Argentina that claim themselves as black, what percentage of that would claim themselves as World Cupian professionals? Less than, less than, less than, less than. One hundred thousandth of a percent. So all of this leads to the broader point. Why did the Washington Post frame the op-ed the way it did? It's almost laughable when one takes the paper's since-revised data into consideration. Put another way, the headline and its subhead ask, why in a country where less than 1% of the population is black and the number of professional soccer-eligible black men is even smaller than less than 1%, are there not more black players on Argentina's World Cup team? People, this is the kind of questions we would ask deep into the night. Diversity. So here you have it. Diversity, equity, inclusion. The NFL wants you to do it. We're sitting there paying $1,500 for football tickets, and we're confronted with the demand to end racism. And as soon as we find it, we're going to go after it. We're going to go after it like a hawk. You tell us where the systemic racism is. Tell us where that system is. And we're going to feed, we're going to feed our, our agents. We're going to get our DOJ down there as soon as possible. We'll get the FBI on them. Well, maybe not the FBI. We're going to have to figure this out, grapefruiters. Keep your antenna up. This is P. Norman Grant with Slim Jim. And whenever you can, squeeze in a grapefruit podcast.